Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of the Cody Krillman Calvet podcast. For those of you who were used to watching this on Facebook or the YouTubes, I'm not filming this one. Filming these things adds an inherent level of complexity, and editing them is not short. So I decided to do one where I wasn't filming myself just to see how it went, kind of cut down on my overall workload and see if there is any negative feedback. If you guys want to see my ugly mug talking into a microphone, certainly send me an email or comment and uh, yeah, I'll try to fix that and and keep recording them. But for right now, we're just going to do an audio only form and Uh, just see if it improves the flow. And I feel like when the camera's on my face, it's a little bit weird because I have to stare into the camera and I've developed this like tick of looking away when I'm talking to regular people because of filming the podcast when you're staring at the camera for an hour. So yeah, we'll try this out. I don't (laughs) feel bad about kind of clickbaiting this a little bit with the announcement of the merch winner. So if you guys saw my Instagram or saw my Facebook in the last couple of days, I did a merch giveaway where I did some stickers. There's some Cody Krillin Calvet stickers out now. What else did I put in there? Some shirts that were provided to me by IMV, uh, the ultrasound company that I use, and then also some hats that they provided, and then I signed everything, which is hugely pretentious. I hate signing things, uh, but people seem to respond, and I got over 2,000 comments of people wanting to win the merch, and I thought it would be great to tie that into the podcast so they would at least have to listen to the first little bit of the podcast to uh, announce the winner and then maybe they would be podcast converts from then so if you guys are joining us from the contest thank you very much for listening to the podcast and the winner is megan Puzzi, p-u-z-e-y i looked up her profile on the instagram i did like a random comment picker there's like a generator app on the internet. So I did a random pick and Megan was the winner. She is a veterinary student and it looks like she will be graduating in the year 2020. I graduated in the year 2011 and that makes me feel super old. So congratulations to Megan. Please make sure you share your merch. That was part of the deal to, uh, I provided two sets of shirts and hats and stickers. So you have to pick somebody who you love dearly and is a Palpation Nation lover as well. And we will uh, send that out to you right away. So congratulations. Today's episode is sponsored by a documentary. So this is a documentary that was uh, put out by Britain Lettingham. Britain is part of I Evolve Photo, uh, a company that has been helping me out with all of my video editing. And he did a documentary called Children of Pioneers, where he talked to a 
bunch of different ranchers and, and people from the big muddy badlands of Saskatchewan about their experiences growing up uh, in this really ranchy pioneer type country. So I will include a link to that in the show notes and in the comments, and then you guys can check out his spectacular YouTube video. I just love videos of like ranchers and, and pioneers and ranch families. And yeah, thanks, Britain, for all of your help. Britain has been helping me with the vlog, and it's been a spectacular change in terms of my ability to put out a lot of different videos. So Britain has been uh, doing a ton of editing for me, and we're like, there's like six amazing videos still yet to come this week and next week because of Britain's help. So I've been able to increase my frequency because I have a little bit of help, which is wonderful. Okay, today's podcast, we're going to go through, I guess, two different things. The first one, I wanted to tell you guys a little story. And this story was the time that I got catfished by being a social media veterinarian. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the term, catfish is now a like urban term, urban term, urban legend, a, uh, a new term that was put out there after a documentary of this guy who got, I guess, swindled, is swindled the word, swindled, into falling in love with a girl online and she turned out not to be who she said she was after all of this kind of like communication. So that is the term catfish, where you get tricked by somebody on the internet um, in thinking that there's somebody that they're not. And I never thought as a veterinarian online that I would ever be catfished, but I actually got catfished pretty early on into the vlog. I can't remember exactly how far in I was, but I feel like it was only like six months, probably not even a year into the vlog. And, and now I'm three years in. And I remember very clearly, I was still like, still questioning this experiment of this daily documentation of my life and what all of the sort of things and issues that would come up from it and, and that it would it even work in terms of marketing my veterinary practice? So that certainly was always part of the reason why I started vlogging is I wanted to be, um, to show the world that I was a good vet and a good person. And if somebody wanted to use me for my veterinary services, then I was there that I was putting myself out there. And at this point, it really hadn't come to fruition yet. So there was still a lot of self-doubt of, of whether or not this was the right thing to do or not. In, in retrospect now, it certainly was. Uh, it's been phenomenal for what we've been able to do with the practice. But I was standing at the postmortem pit at one of my feed yards, and I got a message from my one of my support staff, Marlene, and she said there was a young gentleman who had called the practice and he had wanted me to contact him about potentially doing some work for him. So I was super excited. I was like, yes, this is working. What I had set out to do is finally coming to fruition. And I give him a call and he's from the States and he's got this kind of 
bit of a southern accent to him and he introduces himself and he's extremely polite and really nice and he said hello dr Crailman. um i just wanted to let you know that my father-in-law is a big rancher down here and he had just bought a big ranch near calgary we're going to move up 1,500 of head of our cows up there, and we want you to be our veterinarian. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This is, like, the best thing in the world. This is what, this is what all this hard work was for, and I w- would have never expected to, to do this, to, to be able to be part of this. And this guy said he was a vet tech, and his wife, or I guess it was fiancé, was a vet tech as well, and they love my videos, and they're coming up here to ranch, and it was going, and they wanted me to be their vet. And he said, we also bought a feedlot uh, kind of in the area, and we're going to be ranching these 1,500 mama cows, and then we're also going to be running this feedlot, and we want you to be the vet. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I did it. So we, we exchanged contact info, and we talk a few times, and he keeps saying, like, yep, we're bringing these cattle up. We're just tying, like, some loose ends here. And I remember asking, like, where specifically the ranch was and where specifically the feedlot was. And he kind of gave a vague answer, which I didn't really think much at the time because you're you're from the U.S. and you might not be familiar with, like, the town names and geographically, so... I I didn't think too much of it. But as time went on, things always got put off. He he would message me and say, give me a call. And I'd give him a call. And he'd say, like, yeah, we're so close, tying up loose ends. We're going to be moving these cattle up. So excited. And we would chat and go over, like, herd health protocols and stuff like that. And it just, it never, ever came to fruition. There was always excuse after excuse as to why the timing just wasn't right, but they were getting their ducks in a row. And finally, I started doing some research and and looking up their farm name down in the south and uh, this guy's name, and just nothing made sense. There was no ranch. There was no cattle. There was no... Just, just nothing made sense. There's no father-in-law. Uh, I, I fancy myself as a pretty good Googler. And at this time, I had even told, like, some of my clients, like, oh, yeah, this, like, big rancher's coming up. They got Angus cattle. And I would tell them the name, and, and they would be like, oh, we've never heard of them. Like, kind of confused. And I was still optimistic and wearing rose-colored glasses at the time. But as time went on and, and I was researching and looking things up and then eventually following them on Facebook and following uh, this guy's mom on Facebook, I started to recognize that that I totally got catfished. It just was not ever going to come to fruition. And uh, part of me you know, feels sad for somebody like that who, who just wanted my attention and I, I would have gladly gave it to them without this sort of backstory or anything like that. But it, it is what it is and I have no hard feelings. It, it was certainly embarrassing because then I told my, my friends, my clients that I'm like, yeah, I totally got catfished on this. 
and they they laughed it off and whatever. I guess it's just part of being in the in the public eye. Uh, it's only ever happened one time, but it was a, a learning experience. I probably wouldn't change anything uh, from that perspective, from, from learning that. Uh, I, I make my email public. Uh, it's very easy to find my, where my practice is. We've had lots of people stop in on their way through uh, to visit the practice, to meet me. I love meeting people, so I have no issues with that. But yeah, I totally got catfished. So, the rest of the meat and potatoes of this podcast is just kind of going along the lines of what's happening in our practice right now. So, it's it's weaning time at our practice. It's fall run. All of these cattle are coming into the feed yards. And I got this really great comment from this guy. He's a cow-calf producer. And he said, Cody, can you do a podcast or can you do a video of the things that we can do as cow-calf producers to make these calves have a have a, a great, you know, successful chance once they hit the feed yards? What are the things that we can do as cow-calf producers to decrease morbidity, decrease mortality in the feed yards? Because they, they see my videos. They see that that when calves that are immunocompromised, stressed, uh, sometimes poorly vaccinated, enter into the feed yards, that the 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 health at times uh, is sacrificed because of because of the system that we have in place, and it's it's no fault of any one in individual. Uh, the system is the system, right? We have all of these scattered cow calf places across Western Canada. The same. Is, is equivalent within the U.S. There's there's lots of smaller ranches out there that are, are maybe naive or they just don't have the resources that are producing calves and they enter the feed yards and the feed yards uh, through necessity have had to scale. Uh, nobody set out to design uh, animal agriculture in, in the way that it, that it exists. I talk often about you know, stepping back and asking the question as to why. Why do does animal agriculture exist the way that it does? And and as a direct reflection to that pressure we put on the, the system of the animal, uh, health and welfare do suffer at times. To kind of recap briefly as to why this exists, for those of you that haven't heard me say it before, but but really the the genesis of of intensive animal agriculture really has everything to do with the pressures we put on the system during the world wars i just finished or i'm just about finished listening to dan carlin's hardcore history of of world war 1 and once again it just really i guess hit home as to the amount of pressures that the food animal system was under in order to feed all of these people to feed all of these troops and and we had to develop technology and methods in, in order to industrialize how we made this food in order for us to be able to feed all of these people and it, it was kind of even accentuated when I was listening to this podcast even further, because certainly, you know, we had this shift from the agrarian lifestyle where people were 
producing just enough food to feed themselves plus a little bit extra, which they would sell into the system, and, and that's what fed the cities. But as the population shifted out of this agrarian setting, so people could go off to war, move into cities, uh, there, there was just less people to be able to do that, so people had to feed more animals, and we also had the advent of fertilizer and antibiotics, and other technologies that allowed us to be able to uh, farm more intensively. A feed yard, a 50,000 head feed yard, just simply could not have existed in 1850 because we, we couldn't even feed that many animals within a single location because we we did, just didn't have the ability to, to produce that many crops. Uh, we didn't have the ability to fertilize that much crops. We didn't have that ability to apply herbicide and insecticide uh, and increase productivity to feed that that number of animals. And during the wars, we, we invented all of those things. One of the things that Dan Carlin talked about was there, there was this massive demand for food uh, all over the place. Even before the U.S. was, was in the wars, uh, they were still a, a main supplier of, of food to to the troop to the European troops that were that were part of those battles, and there was even you know an excess that had to be produced because there was food that was being bombed in in ships as these cargo ships were going across the Atlantic. Uh, it, there was food going to waste that was spoiling, sitting on on the American ports, waiting to get shipped because it was unsafe to do so because of of risk of naval vessels and submarines uh german submarines bombing all of these these cargo ships uh it was just unsafe so food was rotting we had to produce so much more food than than we could even eat just to make sure that that soldiers had enough food to eat um it once once it got there so the system isn't perfect, and we certainly work hard every single day to improve that system. And part of that is, is you know, still dealing with what we have to deal with in terms of, of sourcing cattle, sourcing from cow-calf ranches, uh, and, and putting the, these animals into larger feed yards. And there is a lot that can be done to try to mitigate some of that morbidity and mortality on the cow-calf side. And I love this this comment because it, it's really kind of taking ownership of the whole system because there is a mentality out there of these these kind of two separate industries, the cow-calf industry producing calves and then the feed yard industry producing fattened cattle. And a lot of times these two industries seem at odds that the cow-calf guy thinks that the feedlot guy is just trying to to get the lowest price possible and the feedlot guy not necessarily trusting the cow-calf guy to do everything in terms of, of vaccinations and promoting uh, animal health while those animals are in their care. So there's there's just this lot, a lot of segmentation, but it's so refreshing to hear somebody say, you know, what can I do? I know that it's going to cost me a bit extra money, a bit extra resources, but just educate me on the things that I can do on the cow-calf side in order to improve the health and welfare of animals once they hit the feed yards. You have to recognize that within a single pen of 200 animals in a, in a feedlot, which would be pretty typical, two to 300 animals, 
there could be calves that are sourced from 50 different farms, uh, 50 different cow-calf ranches in a single 200-head pen. And it's like the first day of kindergarten. Everybody's shedding viruses and bacteria and they're, they're spreading everything around and these calves are immunocompromised because they've been freshly weaned and they're stressed and they've been through the auction mart. And they've been shipped sometimes long distances. So they're not really starting off on the best foot, but we do everything that we can when they come into the feed yards to be able to, to turn these calves around, to, to get them responding to their vaccine, to get them eating, uh, pen checking them on a very regular basis, two to three times a day once they're in there, uh, triaging animals, uh, treating them with antibiotics, doing vet checks on them, uh, doing postmortems to be able to, to identify what sort of disease processes are going on in these feed yards uh, in real time and be able to implement prevention and, uh, and treatment protocols that will, will improve our success rate. So what can the cow-calf guy do? Uh, a lot of it starts, you know, even before that calf is born. Uh, things like in terms of genetic selection, their, uh, their immune system, uh, an animal's ability to be resistant to pathogens, there is certainly a genetic component to that. It is hard to pick. There's no question. That there's you can't look at a, a bull at a bull sale and be able to tell that that he has an EPD that is analogous to um, to a better immune system, a better resistance to to bovine respiratory disease pathogens. But there is some genomics that are being done, some work that is being done to help us identify those strains, those types of animals that are more naturally resistant. But we can do simple things like relying on crossbreeding, uh, crossbreeding of animals of different breeds uh, improves our overall uh, hybrid vigor, our ability to have more robust immune systems. The, the less genetically related your parents are, uh, the, the better chance that you have of having a more robust immune system. There's, there's even a, a human study out there based off of attraction between a human male and a human female and pheromones and smell. So something that we don't recognize, but we do have the innate ability as humans to be able to be attracted to those of the opposite sex that are more genetically different than we are. And the more genetically different uh, that they are, the, the better chance that our offspring will have a more robust immune system. And, and that uh, selection, uh, in part, is based off of, of how our, our significant others smell, uh, the pheromones that they put off uh, when they're more different than our own, uh, become more sexually attractive to us. So super strange, I know, but but it is the truth. So creating really good, robust um, hybrid vigor um, F1 crosses uh, using using stock that are from that have uh, innate hybrid vigor composite breeding. Uh, I have I have quite a few producers running composite bulls, uh, composite heifers within their herds. Uh, shying a little bit away from purebreds and not putting purebreds down, but they're just less um, less robust in terms of their immune system because they're 
overall uh, genetic lines are more similar similar when they're purebreds versus when they're composites or hybrids. Um, genetics aside, there's also things that we can do within the cow-calf side to promote um, how those genes are being expressed. So this is the concept of fetal programming. Uh, providing everything that a calf needs in utero in terms of nutrition and, and minerals, micronutrients, uh, expresses those genes at a higher level once those animals are born and they can have uh, better performance. They can have better conversion rates if fetal programming is looked after. They can have more robust immune systems, uh, all kinds of things, and making sure that, that those calves, those calves while in utero, so, so their mamas, are being taken care of nutritionally and being provided with things like free choice mineral and balanced rations can really go a long ways to promoting the health of those animals once they're born. So fetal programming is certainly something for people to look into uh, and if they're interested in, in sort of providing the, the best possible, I guess, chance to have a better health out outcomes overall. Nutrition, once those animals are born, is also very, very important. We know when we're coming off of drought years, like this year in Alberta, in, in some areas, those calves, when they're coming into the feed yards off of drought years, oftentimes we will have higher morbidity and higher mortality uh, because of that, um, because the, they're just not nutritionally uh, able to have a, a better immune system. All sorts of micronutrients are very important for that expression of, of the immune system, making sure that all of their levels in, in terms of, of zinc and copper and cobalt and, and all, all of the, the micronutrients uh, promote the immune system and, and allow those animals to be able to fight off viruses and bacteria. The other thing that is pretty important within the cow-calf side of calves coming into the feed yard is, is vaccination. So when we look at some of the data across Western Canada, when it comes to calfhood vaccination, there's still a lot of improvement that we can, that we can do. Uh, only about 60% of calves that are born in Alberta receive a vaccination uh, at some time before weaning. Most of the time, if they do get vaccinated, it's at a single event, uh, six to eight weeks of age, called branding time. Those calves will often be given a, at least an eight-way, a clostridial vaccine, but it's even less common for producers to give uh, the respiratory pathogen vaccines, the IBR, BVD, PI3, BRSV, Manheimia, Pasteurella, Histophila, Somni vaccinations. There, there's a lot of producers in a lot of areas that do do this vaccination, but these are the common pathogens that we see in the feed yards. So if these calves have been exposed to these vaccines earlier on, and then when they're vaccinated on arrival to the feed yard, that those vaccines act as a booster and increase their antibodies, increase their titer level against these pathogens, 
as opposed to it being the first time that they see these pathogens. The best case scenario at times is, is sometimes we see those calves that they're even vaccinated multiple times at the cow-calf level. An example would be an intranasal vaccine given to those calves at birth. A typical product would be one that is protecting against IBR, PI3, and BRSV. That primes the mucosal immune system in those calves, and then they're given a injectable systemic vaccine that primes their systemic immune system. So when they enter into the feed yard, uh, two immune systems are, are primed in those calves, giving them a better fighting chance. An even, I guess, better system, or at least as efficacious, would be pre-weaning vaccination, where those animals are vaccinated at that six to eight week range, um, six to eight weeks old range, and then usually two to three weeks prior to weaning, they're ran through and vaccinated again, giving their immune system that boost and improving those titer levels against those BRD pathogens. And when those animals arrive into the feed yard, it does improve their their overall health, decreasing morbidity, decreasing mortality. Now, that one is a tricky sell when you're just to the cow-calf producer when you're just selling into an auction market because oftentimes a premium isn't realized. You're not getting paid for the, that extra vaccine and the extra labor that goes into that. But back to the question that was had in the comment section about just what are some things that I can do to improve the health of my calf once it hits the feed yard because we have a vested interest in this. That's a very good option to, to be able to put those, those calves through that system. And if you market your calves appropriately, I do believe there is the ability to have some sort of value capture within that system. That leads me to another point in terms of just overall marketing. Uh, I don't want to bash the auction mart system too badly because there's certainly a, a necessity within the industry. If you're a cow-calf producer that has a small amount of calves, it's really difficult for you to market directly to a feed yard. But that said, the opportunities exist for you to develop relationships with multiple feed yard owners and for them to recognize all, you know, all of the hard work that you're putting into your calves. And I think that a lot of times they will pay you, you know, fair market value for those premium calves, for calves that they're going to have to put less resources in, in terms of, of you know, a lower class antibiotic uh, or just have a, an improvement in, in that morbidity and that mortality. That goes a long ways if you work to build that trust level up. That's a really tricky thing. I get it. It's, you know, a lot of times if you're a smaller cow-calf producer, you probably think, what does a feed yard manager, you know, what value does he get about me dropping by the feed yard and developing a relationship, having a coffee with them and talking about your calves when it comes time to wean them. But I get to kind of play both sides of the fence. I spend every day with cow-calf producers and feed yard producers and and the, the feedlot owners, the feedlot managers, they're very keen to develop relationships. They, 
they appreciate relationships just like any normal human would, right? And they have no qualms with with getting to know the the local cow calf producers and developing that relationship to a point where when it's time to sell those calves, they would much rather be able to reach out to you and and make you a fair offer for what product you're producing. Uh, because relying solely on the auction mart system has has its setbacks. So I think marketing can be a really important thing that a cow-calf producer can do. The, the best you know sort of scenario is the ability to truck those calves a very short distance, to not have them go through the auction mart, uh, not picking up extra pathogens while they're in transport, while they're in the auction yard, and they're they're just not being stressed as much. Their transport time is less. Uh, their their access to feed and water is improved because they're just not being you know weaned and then shipped to a yard, standing there for a day or two, being pre-sorted. A pre-sort sale is 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 certainly a, can be an issue. And at at times, those calves hit the feed yard, not seeing feed and water for for three, four, even five days. And they're just not going to mount a good immune response when they get vaccinated on arrival to the feed yards. So that direct marketing relationship certainly has its merits. Some other things that can be done on preconditioning. So preconditioning doesn't just mean doing a pre-vaccination event in those calves two to three weeks prior. Uh, preconditioning is sort of anything that you do to a calf to improve its overall health and performance in the feed yard. Things as simple as doing low stress weaning, uh, fence line weaning, uh, using those little nose weaners that, that you clip onto their nose uh, so they're not as stressed out once mama is finally removed. Uh, that, that decreases cortisol levels, uh, can improve the overall immune system. Uh, training those calves to know what a bunk is, to know that feed and water can come in front of them in in terms of a truck or a a feed wagon and they're not relying just on mum or their grass for their nutrition Uh, that goes a long ways for those calves adjusting once they hit the feed yard even just taking those calves and and feeding them yourselves for two three four weeks uh, before they get shipped off to the feed yard, gives them that time to acclimate to a completely different type of environment, to a dry lot pen environment. And when they hit the feed yard, they know what a water is, they know what a feed bunk is, and they're just not going to be delayed in you know, doing their job of getting up off of the, the pack and going up to the feed bunk and, and eating. So, so many different ways that, that you can precondition and it, it truly does help improve the, the morbidity and mortality. But once again, you're not always going to directly realize a, a true premium just because you do a, a 30 days on your calves before they enter into a feedlot doesn't mean you're going to necessarily get paid uh, 10 cents more per hundredweight uh, for those calves. Another thing that a lot of people I don't think think about is parasite control. So when calves are fighting a high parasite burden as as calves before they're shipped off to a feed yard, 
that can depress their overall immune system. Their immune system is fighting a high parasite burden and there's only a finite number of resources. So those, those calves, if they are, if parasite levels are controlled in those calves, they're going to have a better chance mounting that immune response to any sort of pathogen they come by. Now, how a cow-calf producer can deal with that is is pretty simple. It's just uh, strategic parasite management on the cow-calf level. So that just means uh, treating uh, highly infected individuals, highly infected herds through testing. So the my favorite thing that I that I've spoke on on this podcast before is in that that five weeks post pasture turnout in the summertime just taking a fecal sample on a subset of your animals and determining whether or not the parasite burden is high enough to dictate on pasture treatment. So you can do on pasture treatment with oral dewormers and that allows those calves to to be dewormed and their overall infection intensity is decreased by the time they are weaned. And if we're doing strategic parasite management on a yearly basis, it decreases the overall parasite burden that they're exposed to out on pasture. So there's been tons of cases where I've tested cattle out on pasture and they've been screaming high with parasites and we we do an on-pasture treatment and the next year we don't. And then the year after that, we don't have to do any treatment. We just have to keep testing. And once we reach a threshold, then we deworm again. And it, it truly decreases the overall parasite burden of those calves once they hit that weaning age. And like I said, it, it it really does decrease the the overall stress on that immune system. Those calves, when they enter the feed yard, they are dewormed with a with a poron ivamec. Typically, sometimes they're they're given an oral drench as well. We know based off of trial work that we've done within the practice, uh, those poron insecticides, those are only about 70% effective. So when we do a uh, fecal on those calves on arrival and then give them Ivamec and go back and retest three weeks later in the pen, uh, we have a 70% reduction in the fecal egg count. So there's still a a fairly high level of, of parasite burden. When we do a multimodal approach where we're giving a pour on and also an oral drench on arrival, uh, it's uh, nearly a hundred percent reduction in fecal egg count, but that doesn't necessarily equate to uh, positive economics when we're just looking at at uh, conversion rates and average daily gains. When you're treating an entire population, it's always tricky because eighty percent of the parasites are in twenty percent of the individuals. So when we're looking at an overall pen effect of increased efficiencies or, or improved daily gains, a lot of times the entire population washes out that total economic effect. So essentially it's a wash when we add on oral dewormers in a feed yard for, for an average herd. Uh, that's just when we're talking about conversion rates. That's not when we're talking about uh, having a low level of parasite burden on arrival and how that equates to a decrease in morbidity and a decrease in mortality. So I think parasite control is also a very important thing as well. 
So that about ends it. That is really kind of a, a broad uh, painting of, of what cow-calf producers can do to help improve the morbidity and mortality in feedlot cattle. Uh, it is a lot. The, there is no question. We've been in consulting herds that, that retain ownership right through the feeding period in, in feed yards that they don't own. So essentially they, they own the cow calf side and we consult with them and they own the calves once they enter the feed yard, but they don't own the feed yard itself. And in a lot of times these are natural cattle that aren't getting antibiotics on arrival. And we know that if we're controlling all of these good things that we can do on the cow calf side, we can really make great improvements in the health and welfare of those animals once we hit the feed yards, if we can control that entire system as consulting veterinarians. So this, this stuff absolutely does work. Uh, it's just a matter of who gets the benefit and who has to pay for it. And I get from the cow-calf perspective that putting all of these, these inputs, putting this time and effort onto the cow-calf side doesn't necessarily affect your pocketbook. But if we're looking at a holistic approach of, of we're all in the same industry together, so what can we possibly do to improve the health and welfare of the calves going through the system? These are the things that we need to do. Okay, I'm going to end it there. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Make sure to check out Britain's documentary, once again, the sponsor of this podcast. And uh, if you guys haven't already, please leave me a honest review on iTunes. And uh, we will see you next time.